0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You remember those awkward health classes in school? In my case, it was my gym teacher who taught sex education. But even as adults, how much do we really know about how our bodies work, especially our reproductive systems? Today, where we live, we're focusing in on a topic that affects half of the world's population. Menstruation. Talking about it definitely is not encouraged, but that's been changing slightly in recent years. We'll find out why. Now, how does the perception of periods in different cultures impact girls and women around the world? A researcher and an author will join us later. Now, do you remember your first period? Did you know what was happening? Who did you turn to for information? We want to hear from you. You can email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at wherewelive. Now, first in studio with me is Dr. Amy Johnson. She's an obstetrician-gynecologist at Hartford Hospital. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: So we're spending the whole hour talking about menstruation, but we wanted to get back to the basics first. So because you are a doctor, tell us when a, a a young girl has her first period, what's happening?
2: Okay. So the menstrual cycle is a normal hormonal process that each woman goes through on a monthly basis um, in preparation for a potential pregnancy. And it's a very intricate pathway, but essentially what happens is that a portion of the brain is stimulated to release chemicals or hormones, which then travel through the bloodstream to stimulate the ovaries um, to go through various processes. And that includes the production of other hormones such as estrogen and then um, subsequently progesterone. And at about the midpoint in the cycle or about halfway through, the, one of the ovaries is stimulated to release an egg. Um, That egg is then swept up into the fallopian tube to travel towards the uterus and potentially be fertilized by a pregnancy. Um, The hormones estrogen and progesterone work to, among many other things, help prepare the uterus for a subsequent pregnancy by first thickening the lining of the uterus and then stabilizing it. If ovulation occurs and a pregnancy does not subsequently happen, then that lining of the uterus is destabilized, and menstrual bleeding occurs, and the cycle starts all over again.
0: What's the typical age that a girl will have her first period? We were talking about this in the newsroom, uh, each of us sharing our first stories of when we had our first period, and the age does fluctuate, some of us at 12 or 13, some later at 14.
2: Absolutely. So as you said, the age varies. significantly amongst girls um, even within the same areas of the world. Um, the average age is about 11. Um, the normal lower limit has been drifting down but is about um, typically considered to be about eight years old at this point point. Um, and some women may not have a period till 14, 15, 16 along the normal continuum. Uh, we have a lot of
0: listeners who have children. So uh, it's it's possible that their daughter could have their first period eight
2: years old? Eight years old, they could start going through that process for sure of puberty. Um, typically, that process will, you know, the development of their bodies and then um, subsequently developing a menstrual cycle will take a period of of years, but that that age has been drifting down over the past century.
0: Hmm. Now, uh, when you talk to your patients, even in adulthood, are people still confused about what menstruation is, the whole process?
2: Absolutely. Um, It varies dramatically what I hear on a day-to-day basis from patients. Um, Some women are very in tune with their bodies, um, with their anatomy, what's going on hormonally um, with the menstrual cycle, ovulation. Other women, there is confusion. There are common myths. And we often will spend quite a bit of time um, over a series of visits trying to educate them about what is going on um, with their particular cycle um, and how it may relate to any of their questions or concerns.
0: So we're going to talk through some of those myths and also get a lot of information today um, on where we live as we talk about menstruation. I want to bring into the conversation now uh, to learn more about perceptions of periods, not only here in this country, but also around the globe. On the phone with me is Joan Chrysler, professor of psychology at Connecticut College, also editor of the journal Women's Reproductive Health and former president of the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research. Joan, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you very much. So I understand that there are 5,000 euphemisms for menstruation uh, around the world. Give us some examples of how people refer to the period. Oh, I'd be happy to. And you just gave the first one because period itself is a euphemism,
3: of course. Mm -hmm. The actual name is menstruation or the menses. Um, But people are uncomfortable saying that. So um, probably one of the nicest ones is Mother Nature's Gift. Some of your listeners may remember that Tampax did a television ad a while back making a joke on Mother Nature's Gift. Um, But there's lots of uh, less pleasant ones. Uh, On the rag is a common one. Code Red is another one. Um, I've Got It, Closed for Repairs, Falling Off the Roof. Um, Things to do with time, like uh, the time of the month or the monthlies. And one of my favorites is Aunt Flo is visiting. So there's lots of them.
0: Now, you had mentioned that people are uncomfortable talking about menstruation, so they they say things like period and some of these Mm -hmm. other euphemisms. Where does that come from, this this embarrassment or being self-conscious? How far back can we track this?
3: Oh, we can track it very far back. But probably as long as people have recorded their history, I would guess, um, anthropologists have done a lot of work on this, and there are many taboos associated with menstruation going way back. Like... Women shouldn't walk through the fields when they're bleeding because a drop of blood that falls in the earth would cause the crops to be ruined, or women shouldn't make cheese or make beer or anything uh, because they might curdle it and spoil it. And of course, uh, the sex taboo goes back a long ways, that women shouldn't have sexual intercourse with their husbands when they are menstruating. Uh, The Old Testament tells us that women are unclean after menstruation until taking a ritual bath, and then it's okay, you know, to be with your partner again. So these things are very old, uh, and they reflect the stigma of menstruation. And the stigma is the reason why we don't want to speak about it out loud, I believe. Mm. So there's, you know, the sex taboo is a big one, but Mm. the communication taboo is the other big one that we talk about in contemporary life, It's okay to walk through a field when you have your period now, but it's not really okay in most places to talk about it.
0: Now, when did you begin researching this, Joan? Uh, I started to study this
3: back in the 1970s, so I have a long history of tracking it and being interested in it. Um, It's quite a fascinating area.
0: Now, when you tell people back in the 70s and 80s that this is something that you were researching or was a specialty of yours, did they look at you uh, kind of with a, a surprised look on their face? What What was their perception of that?
3: Yes, they did, and they still do. <laughs> we call it stigma by association. You know, if you are working on a topic that people don't like to talk about, then they think that there's something wrong with you as well. Uh, One way that you can see this is uh, with distancing. When people are embarrassed by something or they see something that they think is stigmatized, they move away. So in conversation, they change the topic. Um, People who belong to the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research have talked about, being on a plane going to a conference and somebody says, what conference are you going to? And then they tell them and then the person puts on their headphones and moves (laughs) slightly away from them in the chair. So, you know, you can see this a lot. People think it's strange to study it, Mm. but it's really very interesting.
0: We got a tweet from a listener, Lindsay, who writes, great topic. She can attest to the taboo factor, as she still doesn't feel comfortable tweeting a reply to Where We Live's call on Twitter for hashtag first period stories and we get that so as we are you mentioned you started researching this in the 70s as we are now in 2017 how have we seen uh, the views of uh, periods changing in uh, pop culture or the fact that it's been brought up most recently in political campaigns
3: yes well When you think about the way it was brought up in the political campaign, the presidential candidate commenting on a reporter's menstrual status, um, that was designed to be an insult. You know, he was trying to marginalize and stigmatize her by suggesting that she wasn't in control of her emotions or she was not logical. So we're still seeing a lot of that. Popular culture is full of very nasty uh, jokes and comments about women's bodies. But on the other hand... um, Many uh, feminists, especially uh, young feminists who are active right now, are working on trying to break the communication taboo. So there's a lot of activity online. There are artists who are making beautiful paintings with menstrual blood that they have collected in cups and saved up to paint with, and their work is great. Uh, there are comedians who are making jokes about other people's embarrassment about menstruation, not about the menstruator herself. Um, There are a couple of museums of menstruation. There are activists who are working against the tampon tax. You know, in many states, tampons are considered a luxury and you have to pay a tax on them. So trying to get rid of that or trying to make products safer. So all of these actions um, are helpful in their own way, but they don't reach the general population as of yet. So, you know, just talking about menstruation as we're doing right now on the radio where people who are switching around the dial might hear us, you know, this is a kind of resistance against the stigma of menstruation.
0: I was looking uh, at a story MSNBC did uh, back in 2008 when an author had brought up, um, you know, they were talking about the downside of having a female president. Um, And an author, uh, Mark Rudolph, was quoted as cracking a joke saying, you mean besides the PMS and the mood swings? And so I wanted to bring that up about how even the acronym uh, for uh, post-menstrual syndrome or premenstrual syndrome, uh, premenstrual syndrome, syndrome, PMS, uh, I'm learning too. (laughs) I've always thought of it as just PMS and why that is something that uh, has gotten the negative connotation,
4: Joan.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, um, you know, for, again, going back millennia, we have had views of women as unstable. Uh, I shouldn't say we have. It's not my view. But, you know, cultures have had these views. You could think about Eve. You could think about Pandora letting all the evils of the world out of the box and things like that. So there have been, uh, in many cultures, these views that women are unstable and untrustworthy for various reasons, even evil. And I think that DMS is a modern version of that. Now, I'm not saying that there are no women who suffer during the premenstrual phase of their cycle. Almost every woman I've ever talked to has experienced some changes in her body. So some women do experience symptoms You know, that are distressing to them. But most women are not severely affected and are not severely distressed. And yet this idea that all women are menstrual monsters and before their period they go crazy, you know, it's very firmly rooted in popular culture now. And uh, I think it's a real disservice to women because people discount our emotions. If we say that we're upset about something, they say, oh, are you on the rag? Are you getting your period next week? Are you PMSing or something like that? And, you know, they don't take responsibility for whatever they did that made the woman frustrated or angry.
0: And the doctor is here with us, O B G Y N from Hartford Hospital, Dr. Amy Johnson. Explain what PMS is.
2: PMS is essentially when you, at the end of your cycle, just prior to bleeding, you have a very rapid decline in your hormones, um, the estrogen and progesterone levels, which can lead women to have various symptoms as they prepare for um, menses. And it's very common, more than 50% of women will describe symptoms of cramping and bloating. They may potentially have an increase in headaches. Um, Some will describe symptoms of mood swings, depression, and so on. Um, And it's really only a very severe form of that where it will significantly affect their daily activities um, and really affect whether or not they can go to school, to work, um, whether or not they have severe headaches, severe cramping. Um, And then, of course, as a physician, that is something that we can work with them for. But majority of women, those symptoms are mild. They're self-limiting. Often, they can do simple things like taking um, Motrin or NSAIDs to help alleviate those symptoms. Um, And then, of course, there are various other things that we can do, such as hormonal control, exercise, and whatnot to help with it. But um, certainly not to the extreme that maybe um, culture has attributed to this time period in the cycle. Now, later in the show, we are going
0: to talk with Dr. Johnson about uh, the women who experience very painful uh, periods because of, of certain disorders. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But I wanted to go back to Joan Chrysler, professor of psychology at Connecticut College, uh, editor of the journal Women's Reproductive Health and former president of the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research. We talked about uh, the influence of, of how people perceive when women are having their periods in pop culture, but also just in advertising. Can we walk us through that? Um, advertising for menstrual products,
3: you mean? Yes. Um,
0: well, they're
3: in a tricky position because they are um, trying to sell their product, but they also um, have to abide to some extent by the communication taboo, so they can't be too obvious. So I think it's kind of funny sometimes to think about the way they actually do this. You know you You see them using blue water to demonstrate how absorbent a tampon is. and of course, you know blue fluid is not what comes out of our bodies, but they couldn't possibly use red. Uh, and they they use euphemisms too, like fresh and confident, you know, and they you know they show images of flowers and other pretty things in their ads. Um, I particularly uh, remember the ones from my childhood where a woman in a white dress was seen gazing off into beautiful nature and it said underneath modus because, (laughs) you know, one time I asked my mother because what, you know, but she wouldn't answer me. So
1: there you go.
0: And we're seeing some of these products uh, evolve a little bit in terms of how they're being advertised today. So instead of seeing a woman frolicking in a field with a white dress, you know, she's working (laughs) In the commercial, she's in front of a computer.
3: (laughs) Yes, and you can see some ads online that are much more uh, out there, you know, influenced by the menstrual activists. There was one a few years ago where a girl was um, so excited that she got her period that she was doing cartwheels in the high school cafeteria, but you would never see that on a mass medium, you know, where people who wouldn't want to see it would accidentally see it you're much more likely to see the subtle ones like Mother Nature trying to give a small, beautifully wrapped box to women she passed on the street and no one would take it because menstruation is the gift no one wants to receive, uh, that kind of thing.
0: Now, Joan, before we had to break, we talked a little bit about how uh, because we're talking about it on the radio, it just shows that there's not as much uh, stigma around menstruation, but it still exists. So how do we change the com- continue to change the conversation um to make it less stigmatized without also discounting the really negative effects it has on some women?
3: Well, I think we need to talk about it more. We need to share our stories. If we talked about it more, maybe the most severe cases would not be the ones that people think are typical. And then the women who have severe symptoms would get assistance with them from physicians because that's not normal. Okay, so most people don't know what normal is because we don't talk about it. And then we have really poor education about our bodies. Uh, You were talking with Dr. Johnson before about the fact that lots of women don't understand their menstrual cycles and don't know what's happening in their bodies, and I see that in my students. They say the most amazingly ignorant things every time we talk about this in class, and they're embarrassed by that, and they're thinking, why don't I know this? Okay, so it's it's girls as well as boys who don't understand uh, what's happening in their bodies. So we need better sex education and better just education about the body. And then, of course, you know, women have a lot of body issues in general um, these days, a lot of body dissatisfaction, a lot of concerns about their appearance, and the possibility that they might stain their clothes or something would just add to that Anxiety and body shame that too many women and girls have. So, talking about it, I think, is a really big step and a very important one. And talking about it in a way that provides education, not in a way that, you know, uh, exaggerates these stereotypes that are already out there in popular culture. Mm-hmm.
0: Dr. Joan Chrysler, professor of psychology at Connecticut College, editor of the journal Women's Reproductive Health, and former president of the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research. Thanks so much for joining the conversation today, Joan. I enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Dr. Amy Johnson and OBGYN at Hartford Hospital will stick around as we talk about periods, the monthly cycle most girls and women up until the age of menopause experience. Now after the break we'll talk about recent conversations surrounding menstruation that are working to change perceptions and we'll learn about attention on access to feminine products that can help girls and women in countries around the globe. Now whether you're a mother or a father, how do you talk about this important biological process with your kids? Join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking about periods. The monthly cycle prepares a woman's body for pregnancy. Later on, we'll talk about complications and ways some women have chosen to avoid menstruation. And you can join the conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining the conversation now is Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, vice president for the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School, also author of Periods Gone Public, taking a stand for menstrual equity. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi. Good morning. So you talk about menstrual equity. What do you mean? Menstrual
1: equity is this, this kind of this term and frame that I think has uh, emerged over the past couple of years that starts to put menstruation in the uh, in the in the frame and idea of what it means to participate fully in society. As stories have become to uh, starting to emerge about girls and women who've been unable to afford or access menstrual products when they need them, uh, or are so marginalized or lacking in agency that they just don't have access to them, uh, it, it, it's become a bit of a political cause that ensuring their full participation in society is, is something that we should focus on. And I've started to put that in the frame of equity, uh, and that is, that is the subject of this new book.
0: Now, why frame this as an equity problem and not a, a larger public health problem?
1: Well, it's interesting. It's framed as a health problem and a human rights issue, in fact, in many parts of the world, and I agree that it is. But in order to forge uh, a political agenda here in the United States and to get uh, cities and states and even the federal government behind the idea that access to these products matters, both to the people who need them and to our society writ large, equity and participation seemed, seemed a more winning frame, a uh, more palatable frame for policy change, and in fact it has been. So tell us about
0: what we're seeing uh, on the local level in states uh, who are working to um, improve access to products for women.
1: Well, it's, it, again, it's kind of emerged as an economic issue, the fact that people are unable to afford commercial products needed to manage menstruation. And it's been kind of incredible to see how, how our government has responded in such a positive way given, you know, the marginalization of menstruation that you've been talking about this hour. But starting last year, uh, in 2016, New York City passed these sweeping laws that, uh, require menstrual products to be freely available to all of the students in the public school system. To people uh, who are participating in the shelter system and those in the correction system, and those those laws were really the first of their kind here in the United States, certainly the most sweeping and it's become um, something that many state governments and city governments are are interested in replicating. Uh, California just last month passed a law that was signed by Governor Brown ensuring uh, menstrual products are provided for free at all of the state's public schools. Illinois did the same, signed by mm. Governor Rauner. And what's interesting, too, to note is that the Democrat and Republican governor who signed those bills.
0: Now, you've also helped advocate against a uh, sales tax on uh, feminine hygiene products. How's that going? That campaign has
1: actually really been, I think, the explosive uh, aspect of this, and the thing that really brought this idea of equity and the economics of menstruation to the public for. Uh, and the, the, the story is simple uh, it's called the tampon tax. People might have heard that phrase, but really what it amounts to is that states, um, as they collect sales tax on products that they sell, um, have the option to exempt products that they deem a necessity. And they do, by and large, exempt food and prescription medications and other other uh, other items that, that are deemed necessary for daily life. Somehow menstrual products were never part of the consideration there, and the vast majority of the states didn't exempt or don't exempt menstrual products from sales tax. So this campaign kicked off in 2015 uh, with a national petition that uh, Cosmopolitan magazine joined me in, in issuing. And since that time, two legislative sessions later now, uh, 24 states have introduced bills to do away with the sales tax for menstrual products. Four have actually gotten it done, Connecticut being one of them. Uh, the other three are New York, Florida, and Illinois. And again, worth noting that both Illinois and Florida had bills that were signed by Republican governors. So this is a bipartisan issue with, with lots of agreements.
0: And we're also seeing uh, these products being offered for free in correctional facilities.
1: Yeah, that's been so that was part of the New York City legislation. And again, that's taken off nationally. Uh, The state of Colorado did so this year for state prisoners. And what's very exciting, actually, at the federal level, uh, the Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, issued a guidance this past summer mandating free menstrual products or to ensure their accessibility for federal inmates. And I keep kind of hammering on the bipartisan piece Mm -hmm. of this because I think it is so noteworthy that in our polarized political times, especially especially around women's health and women's bodies, that we're seeing such broad support for this. So in noting that the Bureau of Prisons did it, it's worth it's worth reflecting quickly on the fact that the Bureau of Prisons is part of the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, led by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and that, that came out of Sessions' At DOJ this
0: summer. Jennifer Weiss-Wolf is author of Periods Gone Public, Taking a Stand for Menstrual Equity. We're talking to her with her today as we devote the hour uh, on menstruation uh, to find out why not only around the world, but even he- even here in the U.S., there's stigma surrounding uh, this very natural process that half the world's population goes through. Uh, now, Jennifer, you mentioned the, the importance of having these products for free in uh, all New York City public schools, but how does that go hand in hand? With the type of sex education students are getting, I mean, one way it's good that they're they're able to be able to access this, but do they understand what's going on with their bodies?
1: They absolutely do need to go hand in hand, and I think that's going to be a longer term fight in New York and, and around the country where where we don't have national standards for sex education and certainly for menstrual health and hygiene education. Um, so, by all means, it is crucial that education around menstruation, how our bodies work what these products are for, how to use them safely, uh, is, is really essential that it be part of this program.
0: This is where we live so far. We've been talking about menstruation and how it affects women in the U.S., also certain policy changes, but we wanted to broaden the conversation. On the phone with us now is Marnie Summer, Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Marnie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. I understand that you've researched and looked at the menstruation and puberty among schoolgirls around the world. Uh, we're talking about how it's still a taboo subject here in the U.S. What have you encountered and how other countries are thinking about this and talking about it?
5: Uh, not, not too dissimilar. Um, I started working on this issue in about 2004 in Tanzania and since then have worked on this issue looking at um, or trying to understand what girls, what women, what parents, what teachers Governments uh, think about this issue in various African countries, Asian countries, and have certainly heard about other people's work uh, in Latin America. And I think across the board, uh, which is both fascinating and unfortunate and something that I think we need to address, there are taboos, there's shame, there's embarrassment, uh, there's girls not knowing what's happening to their body before they have their first period. That's quite frequent. Um, And so I think, while that's not to suggest there aren't girls and women who are well prepared and think positively about menstruation, I think there's really a pervasive sense of um, shame and secrecy that uh, occurs in many, many countries, so um, I think we have work to do.
0: Can you give us an idea of the certain cultures or countries where if a a young girl or woman is um, menstruating, where she is separated from her community during that time?
5: Yeah, there's been a lot of media attention recently, in particular for Nepal, where there is a tradition, the Chapaldi tradition, where girls, when they have their period, are separated um, and they have to stay in a hut uh, during the time of, of their menstruation, and, and there's been a number of stories that have come out about how vulnerable and dangerous that experience is for them, and certainly disturbing and and emotionally upsetting. Um, That being said, I think while that's really important and something we should think about and talk about and work carefully with Nepali colleagues to try and understand and and maybe start to shift some of those norms, I think what, what really is across many, many countries and cultures which we could tackle, which needs to be tackled, is just the fact that, on average, I think uh, a majority of girls don't know what's happening to their body the first time they get their period and see blood for the first time and think maybe they're dying or maybe they're very ill and don't know who to talk to um, and feel this sort of profound sense of shame and discomfort and embarrassment. So um, while certainly the more extreme sort of cultural situations um, are still out there and definitely need attention. I think uh, we have a wider challenge to address that, that's happening to the more average uh, girl and and, and and
1: a larger number of cultures out there.
0: Cheryl's calling from New Haven. Cheryl, you're on the show.
1: Yes, I had a comment. I was living during the time when they just started doing this advertising about sanitary products on television and I was just making the comment about how it made me feel as a, a young, very young teen sitting in a room with, uh, watching a program with boys in there. And all of a sudden they come out with these sanitary products on television and feeling like I wanted to crawl out of there and wondering, how could they do this? How could they be so open about it? So I just kind of wanted to talk about, cause that was an experience that, mm. that I had coming up. In my life, you know, of being ashamed, very ashamed, because, and them doing it so uh, publicly on TV. Mm.
0: That's interesting. I think a lot of people understand what, what you experienced, Cheryl. I'm sitting in those, those health classes. Um, there's an OBGYN in the studio with us, Dr. Amy Johnson from Hartford Hospital. Uh, you know, what is the best approach uh, to talking to not just, uh, you know, adolescent girls, but adolescent boys about? about uh,
2: periods? Absolutely, that's a great question. You know, not only am I an OBGYN, but I'm also a parent, so I have gone through this process. And really, this needs to be done on multiple fronts. And certainly, it starts with the parents. And it should start at an early age. And I'm not saying, you know, when they're five or six years old, sit down and tell them all about the birds and the bees. But from an early age, be clear with your children about what their anatomy is, and don't be afraid to use medical terminology or some simple terminology with them as to parts of their body. And then as they start to progress through elementary school, it is a process of openly answering their questions about doing some education with them over time about what is going to occur in their body as they reach the end of elementary school and middle school for both boys and girls, regardless of what their gender happens to be. Um, Certainly, we would hope that their um, pediatricians also participate in this process in addition to the school system. So it really needs to come across all three of those fronts so that by the time they're going through puberty and they're starting to see other children go through puberty, it's not this big surprise for them. It seems like a very natural process and something that they have been informed is going to happen. And hopefully, they're less likely to tease other children or less likely to be embarrassed about it themselves. Now, with that comes the process that we need to do some catching up. The parents need to be educated about what's happening with their own bodies and what's happening with their children's bodies. Um, If they don't feel comfortable with their own education um, or their – their own knowledge about what happened um, through the, the process of puberty, then they're going to be less likely to be comfortable talking to their children about it. So as providers, we do, as I said, try to do some ongoing education each year when they come in for visits or certainly for problem visits. But there's nothing wrong with parents you know, going to the library and investing in some books, trying to find some good websites out there and so on. Um, so that they're prepared for that process.
0: On the phone with us is uh, Marnie Summer, Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Uh, Marnie, you've also, done, you've also written some books about puberty education. What are some of the best practices to, to help children, not just in this country, but in other countries, learn about this process and to not be ashamed?
5: So I entirely agree with uh, what's already been said. But what we've done is really focus in our energy on doing careful participatory sort of research, collecting girls' and boys' stories about sort of older adolescent stories about having gone through puberty. So, for example, with girls, we collect older adolescent stories about their first period and how they managed um, and, you know, what their advice is for younger girls. And for boys, we collect stories they write on, you know, their own experiences of body change and wet dreams and, and peer pressures they feel. And then we couple that together in books with factual information, images, um, question and answer sections based on questions that the young people actually submitted to us that they were confused about or wanted to know about. Um, and then we partner with governments, those who um, the, the ministries of education, that run the school systems in the countries where we work so that the books can be targeted and distributed to girls and boys ages 10 to 14. And um, knowing that there are sensitivities in a lot of the countries where we work to talking about sex, to talking about contraceptives, to talking about HIV and some of the other issues that are really important but make parents and teachers a little bit uncomfortable, we try to limit our puberty books to sort of the early changes of puberty in the hopes that it is sort of an entry point uh, for teachers, girls, boys, parents, um, other caregivers to start talking about these issues and uh, create sort of an open communication line for what uh, people remain pretty uncomfortable about. And one of the things I found remarkable but makes me smile to some degree is that in every country I've worked in, which is a lot at this point, parents or caregivers across the board don't really want to talk about periods in puberty with their kids. Uh, It's not that they don't care about their kids, they're just uncomfortable. And so um, I think if we can create these tools where you both give the young people something they can read themselves, sort of like I grew up reading Judy Bloom books in the U.S., so you can start to understand your body, but at the same time something that parents are comfortable with so they can also see the material, feel like they can help to answer some of the questions, um, I think that's a good way to start.
0: And uh, Marnie, uh, one last question for you. You know, beyond uh, just access to products, you know, what else is important to to get that equal access in society? That our, our earlier guest, Jennifer Weiss Wolf, was stressing this equity um, yeah. for girls around the world.
5: So that's a fantastic question. And actually, there's some things that get a little bit lost sometimes when we talk about this issue of menstruation around the world. Um, a lot less sexy than talking about sort of information or the products is the very basic lack of access that many menstruating girls and women have either in schools or even in sort of urban areas or workplace environments to basic toilets, water. And by that I mean they may not have any toilets in a given school, or there may be some kind of latrine that, that um, isn't separated from the latrines the boys use or doesn't have a door or doesn't have a lock inside. Or maybe there is a toilet, but there's no water anywhere nearby. And so if you get um, something on your hands, blood on your hands or your skirt, um, there's no way to wash that off. And so I think um, what really go- requires investment from governments and, and those working in some of these contexts is the basic need for infrastructure, for basic toilets and facilities. Um, I think about it a lot when I think about our graduate students and my colleagues at Columbia. You know, how many of them, as hardworking as they are and as determined as they are, would come to work for eight or nine hours a day or come to class if they had a heavy period and there was nowhere to change and nowhere to manage, and if they h- could tell that they had gotten something on their skirt or their pants, there was nowhere to sort of go wash that out. And I think we'd, we'd see a lot less active participation um, in our schools and, and workplace environments if we had to confront that. So that's sort of a, a plug for um, helping the world to do a better job of providing those kinds of facilities in other parts of the world.
0: Um, I wanted to bring back into the conversation Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, who has written the book, Periods Gone Public, Taking a Stand for Menstrual Equity. We just have a couple of minutes left, Jennifer, but um, we were talking about how the conversation is shifting. What are we seeing in, as commercial activity that's, that's playing into this conversation, the different products that are being developed for women to use?
1: Yeah, it was interesting to hear before the, um, the perspective on product advertising and how that's, that, that, you know, has shaped our views on menstruation. And I think um, what's, been, what's been a really kind of exciting development uh, over the past couple of years is that there are new companies that are small and women-owned and very focused on not just creating menstrual products that may give us more choices or provide, you know, better options. Than some of the standard ones we've had access to over the past, you know, century, um, but also really focusing uh, themselves on the dialogue around menstruation and how it's perceived and how it's talked about publicly. So there's been sort of a proliferation of new companies over the past few years, uh, whether their products are are natural or provide better uh, transparency about their ingredients or new kind of reusable options that, that provide. Uh, different opportunities for people here in this country uh, it's been kind of exciting to see uh, it's interesting how that actually intersects with how we fully change the dialogue and think about social change and think about policy change uh, I agree with the with the speaker earlier who, who reminded us that companies are doing this work for a profit and um, that is also part of the equation uh, but certainly it it has to be considered some sort of progress to see that there are new opportunities and options for us and that they're expanding the dialogue around menstruation.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanshal. I want to thank Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, Vice President for the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School, also author of Periods Gone Public, Taking a Stand for Menstrual Equity. Thanks for your time, Jennifer. Oh, uh, Thank you so much. Also, Marnie Summer, Associate Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health, Columbia University. Marnie, thank you. Sure, great to be with you. Coming up, we'll take your calls and questions. Now, how do you feel about having a monthly period? Do you take pills to suppress your cycle? Or do you worry that this practice could impact you adversely? We'll also talk about disorders like endometriosis that can cause girls and women a lot of pain. What kind of support do they get to manage these symptoms? This is where we live. (laughs) This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking about periods. And today with me, Dr. Amy Johnson, an obstetrician gynecologist with Hartford Hospital. We want to get to some calls soon. uh, But Dr. Johnson, I wanted to talk a little bit about endometriosis and other disorders that women experience where just having that monthly cycle is very painful.
2: Absolutely. So, endometriosis is a condition that typically we start to see in women in their twenties and thirties, um, in which the cells that are in the endometrial lining um, can actually be found outside of the uterus, such as in the abdomen, in the pelvis, on the outside of the ovaries, um, and they're still driven by those hormone levels and throughout the menstrual cycle, and particular or throughout the menstrual cycle and particularly during menses, can cause considerable pain for patients, um, as well as things such as increased bleeding during their menstrual cycle. Um, In addition, they can also contribute to conditions such as infertility. So this is something that, unfortunately, we can commonly see with our patients.
0: So what are some options, uh, medical or alternative treatments to help women?
2: So typically, after we've made a presumptive diagnosis of endometriosis, um, we will start women on therapy with um, what we call NSAIDs or medications like ibuprofen to treat their pain. And most commonly, we will start them on some sort of hormonal suppression. Um, And typically, that will come in the form of uh, hormonal contraceptive pills or birth control pills. The nice thing about the birth control pills is that they most commonly will contain both estrogen and progesterone, and we can use them to manipulate the menstrual cycle to prohibit um, or suppress ovulation and really give a nice steady state of hormones throughout the month so that you don't have those up and down levels of the hormones, um, then which can contribute to Uh, growth or um, increase in their um, endometriosis symptoms. Um, We can actually even use those hormonal pills to suppress a menstrual cycle altogether. Is that
0: common? Do a lot of women first know that, that they could just keep taking without the I think the sugar pills at the end of the pack, that they can keep suppressing their cycle if they don't want to? And do, is there pushback? Do people feel like they need to have a monthly cycle because it's natural?
2: So that really varies. Um, there are so many birth control pills out on the market, and they vary in their content and their dosing and the timing for them. Um, there are four main um, pills that are marketed towards using them continually continuously, and you can use them continuously so that you only have a period every three months, or there's one actually out on the market so that you can go an entire year without ever having a period and, and continue on from there. Um, so it varies as to whether or not women know that these even exist. Um, some women really like the concept of never having a period. Um, they feel like, hey, this is great if I never have to worry about having the symptoms or the bleeding and dealing with products and the nuisance of this. Um, this is wonderful. Other women, it's very interesting. They, um, for numerous cultural reasons, really feel that they want to have a period each month. Some women feel reassured that they're in, if they have a period each month, they're not pregnant. Um, Some women feel that they need to go through that natural cleansing each month of having a period. However, there is no medical reason whatsoever as to why you need to have a menstrual cycle um, when you are on birth control pills. Um, In fact, by suppressing the menstrual cycle using hormonal contraception, we actually thin out that lining of the uterus and help to prevent things like endometrial cancer or uterine cancer and even ovarian cancer.
0: I wanted to fit in a call. Maria's calling from Marlboro. Maria, you're on the show.
2: Hi, Lucy.
4: I just wanted to share my story. I had suffered from endometriosis for many years, and I had run the gambit of every treatment available to me. Um, I actually was successfully able to have two children, which is often something that people with endometriosis cannot do. Um, And then after my children were born, my endo came back with a vengeance. (laughs) And so I actually opted to have a hysterectomy. And in the course of the pre-testing for the hysterectomy, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Mm. And it was something that I would not have been able to, um, they wouldn't have found as early as they did if I hadn't gone through these steps to take my own health into my own hands. And so I just would say for people who are suffering from endometriosis, you know, really work with your doctors. And I would also say, don't miss the tests. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It, It really did save my life.
0: Well, thank you for sharing your story. We're glad to hear that they caught that. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left, Dr. Johnson. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you also, someone had called in and was curious because uh, she's had fibroids and that can cause extreme bleeding. What are what are some options for women that have that?
2: So fibroids are a very common finding in women in which they can have these um, benign growths in the uterus, meaning typically not cancer. Um, the majority of women who have these small fibroids don't even know that that they have them. Um, it definitely becomes a concern when they start to increase in size and in number, or if they're um, if they involve the lining of the uterus. Typically, women will present with much heavier periods. Um, they can be more painful periods, and then they can have symptoms throughout the month of what we call sort of um, bulk symptoms, meaning because the uterus has enlarged from these benign growths. it really feels like they have something in their pelvis. Mm -hmm. Um, Some women will describe pressure, they may describe symptoms of increased urination, Um, and it can really become very uncomfortable for them in addition to having these very heavy painful periods. Treatments run the gamut. Um, Typically, we really like to try to start with some sort of um, medical management, meaning not surgery, that can run all the way up to um, in women who really have severe symptoms and very large fibroids. Um, In some cases, we um, commonly may have to do a hysterectomy for these women.
0: Now, we just have a couple of minutes, but for women who get negative side effects from taking hormonal birth control, any other options for them to deal with pain?
2: Um so it really depends on what their their medical conditions are and what their negative symptoms are. So as I mentioned earlier there are two main types of hormones. There's estrogen and there's progesterone. And contraceptive methods that are out there, um some of the forms have both estrogen and progesterone and some of them are progesterone only. And for women who typically have um, complex medical situations, they may be more likely candidates for progesterone-only methods or methods such as an intrauterine device, which we can actually place into the uterus to help with their endometrial bleeding and minimize their More systemic side effects.
0: Uh, We just got, we don't have time anymore for calls, but uh, one uh, woman was calling in to say that she educated her daughters with the American Girls doll series, Care Keeping You. And another is asking if there's resources for families with girls. Uh, Any
2: websites that they can go to quickly, Dr. Johnson? Uh, There's a whole host of websites out there. you know i i don't have one in particular that i like to champion mm-hmm. but um, so i will
0: we'll follow up with you and we'll post it on our website wmpr uh, dot org slash where we live. We gotta leave it there. We ran out of time. It went too quickly. Dr. Amy Johnson again, OBGYN from Hartford Hospital. Thank you for coming in.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf, WMPR intern Sarah Bly. Again, we'll have some resources on our website later, WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.